If you've ever been surprised by your own thoughts, well, you're not alone. From the time we're born to the time we die, we spend our lives meeting strangers, including the one within. We also spend our lives learning about many of those strangers and turning them into colleagues, friends, and family. In this podcast, host Charlie Bressler talks with fascinating people on their musings about family, community, work, helping others, and getting to know the stranger inside ourselves. Where do we fit in the world we all inhabit together? Charlie Bressler, the co-founder of The Life You Can Save and former president of a large international retail company, investigates ideas that he has been musing on since he obtained his PhD in clinical and social psychology way back in 1984. Is it possible for life to be both fulfilling and moral? We're surrounded by temptations that often conflict with our moral code. The temptation to drive when we can walk, to eat food that was brought to us at great environmental cost when local foods are available, to spend our money on ourselves when we could donate to nonprofits, and to what extent are our choices dependent on our culture and our upbringing. Our guest for this episode had what she describes as a, quote, comfortable middle-class lifestyle, unquote, in India. But she was shocked to discover that unlike in India, most people in the U.S. have clean water coming directly from the kitchen tap. Today, I'm excited to be musing with my colleague, Neela Saldana. Neela is a board member of The Life You Can Save and currently leads the Yale Research Initiative on Innovation and Scale. Neela has a PhD in marketing from Wharton, which she uses in all her work to increase giving to high-impact, cost-effective nonprofits. Welcome, Neela. It is a pleasure to have yet another conversation with you. Thanks for being on board. Hi, Neela. I'm so glad that you were able to join us today. I'm looking forward to a stimulating conversation because I know whenever we talk, I find what you have to say to me very interesting, compelling, and I hope our subscribers to the podcast do as well. I want to talk in general about the relationship between self-interest and morality. Does living a fulfilling life conflict with living a moral life. The first thing I'd like to ask you about is, how do you understand how your Indian heritage may have impacted your life, the decisions you've made, and your overall thinking? You know, one way it's been really useful in my way of thinking is that it's a completely different culture and way of living, at least when I grew up, right? So I grew up in a very, what I now think of as an upper middle class Indian family. My father was a corporate executive. My mother was a lecturer. So I don't have, you know, I have the privilege of not having a, a poverty story to talk about, very comfortable upbringing. Uh, but I think when I came to the US, I realized that actually there's way more when you talk about quality of life than what I experienced in India. So what I learned, which is we had an extremely comfortable life with Indian incomes living in India, but we could not afford to go abroad. Coming back to this Indian heritage, I think it was more this realization that what I thought of as a good life in India, and it was a very good life, is, is actually exponentially better in the US. So I'll give you a simple example. We lived upper middle class, didn't want for anything, and yet we had to boil our own water. There was no clean water. There is no clean water. You, you know, rich households just get a device now that filters the water. And when I came to the US, people said, you can drink water out of the tap. And I said, of course you can't drink water out of the tap. What do you mean? And they said, yes, you can because it's clean. And 
that just blew my mind. And I guess that is what the, the contrast is what I can never forget. So it wasn't the roads, it wasn't the cars, it wasn't the big houses. It was the small things like this that I never even thought possible growing up in India, pretty well to do, that I think really changed my outlook as to, you know, what is, how do people in different parts of the world actually live? What about cultural things like religion or beliefs in what people's obligations were to their families? Were there big differences between the United States and India relative to your culture? Did you change? Did you become Americanized? Or have you stayed, do you think, pretty true to your original heritage, assuming there were differences? So I think one thing is that family is really important. And this idea that one has financial obligations towards one's family. So you always think about looking after your family financially more than maybe if I grew up here and there's this notion that you're pretty independent. I grew up Catholic in India. And, and a lot of this look after your parents comes from non-Christian religions, from Hinduism, from Islam, etc. But you still absorb those lessons. So that's a cultural lesson, not a religious lesson. You know, it is a big part of our budget, which is making sure that parents are financially okay and we can provide for them. So I think that's one big place where I think this idea of duty does come in. And this which is quite different from sort of the freedom and independence that you have in the U.S. What about in terms of spirituality? I guess, do you see differences in your view of the world as a result of growing up in India versus the way an upper middle class American might feel? I mean, the one thing in India I do think, and this was I grew up in 80s and 90s India, is is that it, it was at that point, and, you know, I'm not sure it is exactly true right now, but at that point it was a, a country in which religion was very much at the forefront but in a very peaceful way. So my husband, you know, grew up Hindu. And I remember thinking that Hinduism, for example, is the sort of very welcoming, you don't have to be converted. You don't have to, you know, attend church every Sunday to be called Hindu. You just take part in the ceremonies and everyone is equally welcome. They give prasad to everyone, unlike communion, where you have to sort of be you know, baptized and receive communion to to have it. So it's a very inclusive kind of religion. So I think my view of religion was that it was very inclusive. But no, I mean, I grew up with a lot more because, you know, we went to church. Uh, my husband actually grew up with a lot of religion, but didn't really like it because it's also very patriarchal and it also comes with its own sets of rules. So I think in some ways, both of us grew up with this idea that we would evolve our own morality. So as a result of which, you know, we haven't taught our daughter anything. We haven't baptized her. We haven't put her through any rituals because we have a more inclusive definition. Do you believe that anything that was going on between the Muslim community and the Hindu community and the tension that started back when both Pakistan and India became states, I guess, was 1948, but that has been an ongoing tension increasing now under the Modi government. Did you experience any of that and did it affect you? Because clearly in the United States now, we have a lot of polarization going on and you grew up in a what might have seemed like a very polarized society. I didn't experience it directly, but definitely there were the Hindu-Muslim riots, I think, in the 90s. We lived in a, in a very Christian-dominated neighborhood, mm. so really we didn't, we didn't see that. But I do remember sitting on our on our balconies and verandas and talking about it and seeing that. So I do think it was always there all around. And now when I talk to my mother, she's still in India. You see it every day. 
So that's almost the reality in the sense of, and even of a lot of our classmates who have bought into this idea of, uh, you know, this sort of uh, muscular Hindutva idea and who believe that, uh, you know, a lot more intolerance. So I do see that, uh, experience that I think a lot more now than when we were growing up. When you're privileged, you can just not think about things, which is, you know, something that I didn't think about at all, for example. So I saw Hindu, Muslim issues and religion issues, but we never thought about caste issues, for example. And I went to school in India. I went to business school in India. My view of business school in India was that I had a fabulous time. I had great friends. A lot of them were economically deprived. This was their first time and they really made something of themselves. The narrative I heard, and this is like 20 years later from my friends who are from the oppressed caste, uh, Dalit and Bahujan, is very different. And they said, well, it was a place of discrimination and I didn't even notice it. I may have even participated unknowingly in some of that. I think that's that's where I say that, you know, water is invisible when you're, when you're swimming in it, right? And that's something that, again, coming from a different culture actually made me think about things that people here, people in the U.S. might take for granted. You came to the United States and you found yourself getting a marketing degree at, <laughs> at Wharton. And I'm not sure how that happened or what got you interested in marketing in the first place, but it has, for our listeners, it's become a very important part of Neela's life. And so I'm curious how that all happened. Yes. So I think, uh, you know, I there's a funny story. When I was in school, they had us do this kind of aptitude test. You know, what do you want to do on your inclinations? And I was pulling my, my scorecard out the other day, maybe I don't know, 30 years later. And it said that I was equally likely to be an accountant or to be a writer. So I got like both these scores. And actually, uh, this is the funny part. The least likely thing I was to was to be a social worker. Uh, so it was kind of interesting to see that. But this accountant writer, so I always think I had both sides. I like math, but I also like the creative side. I struggled a lot with that one side to the other, did economics in undergrad, but found it was too math and not enough creativity. It's like being intellectually ambidextrous is kind of what <laughs> yeah. So I think when I went to business school and I found marketing, I was like, okay, this is cool because this is numbers, but you know, you can still learn about people, which I liked a lot. And so that's how I chose marketing. So I went into marketing as usual, worked with Nestle, with Unilever in India, worked with Accenture, which is great. But then a lot of marketing was about, this is our experience. This is, you know, how we've done it. This is anecdotes. So I think I was always a little bit like, surely there's some data, there's some evidence. And that quest actually took me to a PhD. So my PhD was in marketing, and I thought I was going to learn about brands and, uh, you know, all that good stuff. And it turned out to be about just basic stuff around judgment and decision making, which is interesting. And you worked with Deb Small, is that correct, when you were at work? I did, a little bit, yeah. Can you tell everyone a little bit about what Deb was working on and how this judgment and your work more specifically with Deb and what your doctoral dissertation was about? And then I want to ask some more specific questions about philanthropy and marketing after that. So, you know, Deb was one of the professors who really opened my eyes to what one could research in marketing. Because when I went in, I thought it was all about for-profit brands. And that actually is a lot of what I did in my doctoral dissertation, where I looked about, uh, and we'll talk about that. But Deb's work actually was interesting because she talked about charitable donations 
which as you think of it is a form of marketing, is a form of consumer behavior. And uh, of course, she did this, this famous piece of work on the identifiable victim effect, which is that we are more likely to donate to a picture of a victim than we are when multiple victims and stats are presented to us, right? And it's that famous quote that, you know, single death is wrenching, multiple deaths are a statistic. That's what she showed. So she showed that when she gave a photo of an eight-year-old Rokia and talked about like how Rokia was starving, people actually tended to give a certain number as donations. When instead of that, she put this idea that there were millions of children who were starving, people actually give less or give less per person or didn't appropriately size up their donations. And and one of those is like we give to people who we find, you know, we give to people that we know. It, it arouses emotions in us that compels us to give. When we see statistics, those emotions get dampened. And I think there was some work that she also did with uh, with Paul Slovic, where they showed that even if you put statistics on the the photo, it dampens people's emotions. So I thought that was extremely interesting because giving is a behavior, and it's really it's determined by the same factors as if you were to buy soda. You're still led by emotions. It's not just the product itself. It's how it's packaged. It's how it's distributed that drives your behavior. So I do think that that was eye-opening for me. We collaborated a little bit. I wouldn't say that we did we did a lot of work together, but I be, I appreciate her work more and more now, actually, out of the PhD program. My work was around uh, looking at indulgences. So this idea that you know when you mix what we call pleasure and utility, Marketers tend to think it's the best of all worlds, but consumers actually think it's the reverse. So uh, if you have what is called a mixed indulgence, which is, say, chocolate with some vitamins in it, then, you know, marketers are like, this is great. Now we have vitamins and we have the chocolate. And for consumers, what happens is that it actually takes away the the sin of indulging. So suddenly they're like, this is worse. I might as well have my vitamins separately and my chocolate separately then put them together. So that's what I was trying to unpack in my dissertation, how people think about indulgence. Everyone may not know or from the introduction may not remember that you and I work together on the board of The Life You Can Save. And The Life You Can Save is attempting to essentially market the idea that people can give more effectively. And Can you explain effective giving and what you know about marketing that idea of effective giving, how easy it is or how difficult it is and what we've learned about that? Yes. So, you know, I think that this this idea. So first of all, I do want to say that the most amazing marketing strategy has been Peter Singer's sort of drowning child analogy. And we talk about a powerful way to make a very abstract concept into something very simple, which is you're going by the pond, you see a toddler drowning, do you rescue the toddler? And our initial reaction always is yes. And well, you have expensive shoes and we're like, don't be stupid. Of course, we're going to, you know, it's it's okay. We're just going to rescue. And then the killer question, which is like, well, every day this is happening and what are you doing? I think that that itself is is a great example of taking something extremely abstract, how can I do good in the world, and making it extremely concrete, which is that now there are lots of questions, like how many pools are there? Can I go and rescue every toddler? You know, But that simple question is very hard to walk away from. And that to me is effective giving. You have a lot. You see a place where you can make 
a lot of difference without too much of a change in your own life or a change that's not dramatic. Maybe you lose some shoes in the process, but you're not going to lose your life. You ought to do it. And I think that to me is really about now that's the idea of giving. But then there's the idea that, okay, if you're going to give, some charities can do thousands of times better than other charities. And so you ought to think about where to give and to give carefully, because it's not just a matter of I've given, what you're really trying to do is to save the toddler, right? So you won't wade into a, a drowning pool. And if the pool was, you know, very this and you didn't know how to swim, you'd rather call 911 or something. So similarly, you should think about what's the thing that will save the toddler's life and, uh, you know, do the impactful thing rather than something that just makes you feel good. So I think that that's the idea of effective giving, which is to give what you can and what you what is easy for you to give and uh, to help, and you ought to do that. And the second is that give in a way that's effective, give to effective charities that can do much more with your money than if you give to an ineffective charity. But unfortunately, for people who want to do good, the effective charities, the most effective charities, the one that can do a thousand times better are in the developing world, far away from, say, where people in the United States or Australia or the United Kingdom will be giving doesn't that raise a lot of problems from a quote-unquote marketing point of view as how you get people to want to do that? It absolutely does. I mean, first of all, this concept, you're trying to get people to do a new behavior, right? And so you're trying to get them to give. And the question is, I mean, you can, some people get, get motivated by guilt, but not everyone is going to get motivated by that. This behavior isn't a social norm. So it's not like there's anything that prevents me. No one will say I'm a bad person for not giving. So it is a difficult thing even to do. Then you're trying to get them to do something that's against human nature, what Deb Small's work and others show, which is to have empathy for someone you have never seen in another country, to use sort of your reason, your analytical part of your brain over the part of your brain that makes you react to things and to actually give overseas. So I can't tell you how how difficult of a challenge I think it actually is. It's a great end, it's a great goal, but I'm sure you realize, Charlie, that it's it's tough. It's not as easy as it sounds. Yeah, well, I've been involved in marketing also, as you know, but I was marketing uh, middle market suits. It was a lot easier to tell people, buy this suit, it's $100 less at our store than at the department store. That was a very easy thing to do. (laughs) But getting people to give to people that they've never met, that are far away, that are of a different race, is very challenging. And you run into Deb Small's other problem where I might want to say there are 5.3 million children dying every day from largely preventable illnesses, meaning illnesses that people in the United States, the United Kingdom, wouldn't children wouldn't die of. They would easily be treated. And you go, oh my gosh, there's 5.3 million toddlers in that pond that you can save one of or two of for very little money relative to what you're going to do with it. What do you think we should do about that marketing challenge, Neela? I mean, is it something we can overcome? I think you have to just chip away at it, I think. And, you know, this comes from years of being in consumer goods companies where they don't say we're going to go from zero to 100. They're like happy if they get 0.5% market share. 
And if you look at what they're doing, they're continually advertising. I mean, Pepsi, it's, I worked at Pepsi. It's like a, what, 60, 70-year-old brand. They never stop advertising, right? It's Or, or Ivory from P&G, you know, they've been advertising for 100 years. I think you constantly have to make the argument. You can't rely on the fact that the argument itself is amazing and people will do it. It has to be top of mind for people. And I think that one thing we've learned from marketing is that you've got to make that argument at times when people are receptive to the argument. So you that's the that's why you need to keep the marketing on because there will be times when people are not receptive to eating chips and then the Super Bowl when everyone wants to eat it. And you better be there at that point because that urge goes away, whether it is giving to charity or buying, you know, a packet of Tostitos chips. So I think there's a lot to learn in terms of, you know, just keeping that drumbeat going, keeping it going at, at sort of different points. There's different segments. Different people have different motivations to give. So you might have someone who wants to give because they spend some time in India or in Kenya, and now this is a way for them to sort of give back. There might be someone who has some sort of connection. There might be someone who purely uses reason and does the calculations to show that would be more cost-effective. So I think depending on the audience, you also want to tailor your message. Well, when I was in marketing, I was in charge of a $90 million a year marketing budget. And when you were at PepsiCo, you had lots of money to market. But the effective giving movement is not raising a huge amount of money for these people overseas. We're, we're starting to crack it a little. My sense is, and I wonder if you agree with me, Neela, that we need a lot of money to market this idea in a way that would be effective the same way we market consumer packaged goods, that really marketing this idea of effective giving to people overseas where it can do the most good and where the dollar goes the furthest is essentially a marketing challenge like a consumer packaged goods challenge. And therefore, the way we can get the most money for the people that we're talking about right now is to market it like a product with very clever marketing, but it would be very expensive. Do you agree that if we had a proper marketing budget, say at The Life You Can Save, which has kind of been my view all along, we could actually begin to break through and raise exponentially more money? Definitely. I mean, I give, you know, my donation goes to The Life You Can Save. And partly because I think this idea that we've shown it, which is that for every dollar you give, you can raise $17, i.e. the life you can save takes your dollar, uses that to create marketing materials to reach out to people. And through doing that, they can raise another $17. So if I give $10,000, it's almost like I am raising $170,000 or $180,000. Now, if I can do that myself, that would be great. I would do it myself, but I can't. So, you know, why not give it to an organization that's thinking about it? But Charlie, I think you raise a good point about marketing is seen as sort of a dirty word in the nonprofit as is overheads as is overheads by the way and you know we don't want to pay people well to do the work we are very project based and we hope that everyone will just give it doesn't happen that way we are competing with people's wallets and we are competing with you know the apples and the the pepsis of the world who are putting in a lot of money to convince people to spend the money in their wallets and meanwhile, we're just sitting there and saying, well, you should give because it's a good cause. I don't know if that's convinced anyone. So, yes, I completely agree with you that we need to get together. We need to say, how do we spread this message? If you don't like the word marketing, we can say, how do we spread this message more effectively? But we're doing marketing. And how do we make sure it's resourced enough that we can do it without 
And, you know, this is something we, we learned. I'm sure you learned that. Doing it halfway is almost worse than not doing it at all. So if you're going to do something, you can't put three ads on a TV and hope people will pick up. You've got to like go all the way and spend the money. So when people say, oh, why are people spending on Super Bowl or why? Because they've done the ROI and they know it works. And somehow I feel our sort of idea of we're just going to make tiny investments because we are not comfortable with spending doesn't get us to that ROI because marketing isn't, as you know, it's not a linear game. You have to spend to get the returns. People have said, well, what would you do? And, I, and when I say, well, if I had somebody who gave me $10 million, what I would do to help these children, 5.3 million children who are dying every year. But this individual is incredibly interested in helping those people. And she decides to give me $10 million because she's very wealthy. And we know there are a lot of those wealthy people. So she gives me $10 million. What would you do, Charlie? And I say, well, I would probably waste the first $3 million in a bunch of marketing tests, some of which work, but most of which didn't work. And then after I've wasted the $3 million or most of the $3 million, I would make a fortune for these children and for effective charities with the next $7 million. And people go, you're going to waste $3 million that you could have given to these people? And I say, yes, I'm going to waste $3 million because with the next $7 million, I'm going to raise $70 million or $700 million because I've finally figured out the best channels for doing this. This is a very hard thing to get across to people. You and I are still on a mission to do it. It is. We're hoping that the life you can save will be the organization that finds that very wealthy person or a number of pretty wealthy people that contribute to the life you can save as you and I and Peter Singer do. But it's a tough slog, isn't it? It is a tough slog. And I think it's, you know, it's funny because when you say that about marketing, people go, oh, no, you must have every penny accounted for. And yet there's so much waste. I mean, think about ineffective charities. So the big problem with charities isn't that they're bad and they're fraudulent. I mean, there are some of those, but that's not the big story. The big story is people who do something out of the goodness of their heart, and it's completely ineffective. I mean, think about all the money that's going there that we don't even think about. So I do think if you're talking effectiveness of marketing spends, we should be talking effectiveness of donating to charities in general. And part of that is spreading the message around effective charities. So, but yes, you get that a lot more in, in marketing than yeah. you get with anything right. else. Try telling Pepsi that they shouldn't market Lay's potato chips or Doritos because they sometimes waste some of the money. But you should just put them in the store and people will buy them. Well, that's true, but they're not going to buy nearly as much. Yeah. I think at this point we'll have to move on, but I hope that people who are listening to this are really thinking about the dilemma of the identified victim, but yet there's massive numbers of children and others that are dying of preventable illnesses. And come to thelifeyoucansave.org and check out what we're trying to do and see if you want to help. Hi, I'm Roy Head, the CEO of Development Media International. You're familiar with ads that sell products like shampoo and beer and medications. Well, we make ads too, but our radio and television actually save children's lives. They're scientifically evaluated and they're aired on radio stations in sub-Saharan Africa, encouraging mums to bring their young children and babies suffering from severe diarrhea or malaria or pneumonia for life-saving treatment in community health centres and hospitals. The Life You Can Save has been instrumental in raising funds to support our work. Please visit thelifeyoucansave.org forward slash musings to find out how to save lives.
And we've, of course, appreciated you being on our board, Neil, and we're continuing to hopefully, as you use your words, chip away at this problem. I want to move into a completely different direction. Okay. Do you think there are universal moral principles like some of the Ten Commandments or all of the Ten Commandments that should apply to everyone in every culture? So Indian culture, American culture, 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, universal moral principle, or is morality simply relative to the individual or the culture? It's another big question. I don't know, because I, every time I think there should be something universal, you can always make an exception to that. So if I say, you know, you should not kill, which you should not. So that one, I think I, that's pretty, that I would say is pretty, pretty standard for me. I think I don't even believe in the death penalty. So in some sense, I think that thou shall not kill. Um, although I'm very strongly pro-choice, so I don't know where that falls on the on the list of Depends it. Who you ask. But uh, that might be the only one. But the other ones all have like the, you shall not lie. And Peter wrote a recent article, like and you know during the the we all admire Schindler, Oscar Schindler, yeah. and obviously he lied a ton to to get right. where he to save the people. So I feel like every moral principle in general is thou shall not do this. In 99.9999% of cases. But there are exceptions. (laughs) I don't know if there's something that I I would say is completely universal. I want to talk to you a little bit more personally, if that's okay. And I really want to talk to you about, given your interest in saving those girls in the pond, lots of them, your interest and obligation to your family and your local community how do you manage these different obligations in your own life today? How do you balance them? Where are the pulls? What do you think you're doing well with it? Where do you still want to improve? So I think that the way I balance it is by setting some rules and boundaries around how I do things because I tried to do the reasoning and it just made me miserable every time <laughs> when I think about, should I do this? No, I could like, buy. Should I go out for dinner or give the money away? That kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, realize that this wasn't very helpful. I also found Charlie, your point about personal best being very useful in this case, because uh, if you see, you know, you hear stories about people giving 50% of their wealth or their income, and I just can't get to that at this point, then I would feel terrible and not give anything. But I think this idea of like, you try and improve every year is very motivating to me. So the way that I do that is that I, I just set rules around what I would, what we'd give. And that's just like you said, rules about saving or investment. It's kind of interesting. I don't know whether I should. My husband is a supporter of, of you know, effective altruism. He doesn't really mind. He's totally happy to but I've never actually asked him. We just use our household finances as joint, which I sometimes wonder about, and you know whether it should be percentage of my income or his, or our joint income. So a certain percentage of our income, and that's really for effective giving. So that percentage I keep for the life you can save and or charities that the life you can save endorses, because as far as I know, that's kind of the the effective universe. Are there more, of course? And then in terms of community, again, the similar thing applies. I just assume that that budget is smaller because I assume that America is a rich country. Many other people are giving to local organizations. So, you know, I don't feel so bad about giving what I would consider not such a great sum of money. So that is the smallest pool. It goes to organizations like the Bail Project, which pays for people's bail. It goes for to organizations, to media organizations like NPR, because I think having good media is good to call out excesses in society. 
it goes to a few other organizations. So it's Jose Andres's World Central Kitchen, just because I like what he does with sort of feeding the world. And I worked for many years in food companies. So that's a mix of, do I like this? Is it good enough? And, you know, it's it's not a big part. It's a few coffees per month from my budget. So I don't even think about that. And then there's the whole part, obviously, about saving. Family, similarly, I think we just made a rule as to what we would give. I don't think about it. We don't think about whether that money gets used well or doesn't get used. It just goes. I think it really helps with all of this to not think about too much about once you give the money away. And then the rest is for, yeah, for for living. A lot of people do benefit from rules. Can you explain whether you change the rules according to personal best? So does do you change the rules at all in order to do a little better each year, which is how I understand personal best? Yes. So we'd, we'd like to get to a point where we're giving to effective organizations at least 10 to maybe even 20% of our gross income. Okay. But the idea is to set like maybe half a percentage or a percentage point. Another way that we think about it is our daughter's currently getting to high school. Soon she'll be in college when a lot of the expenses go away. So you know, we would take that amount and sort of start to give. So I think it also helps not just to have rules, but also to think about the stage of life that you're in. And actually Hinduism, we talked about spirituality, has a nice concept of life being in stages. We are currently in what would be called the householder stage. And I think the idea with that is, you know, fulfill your current obligations when you're in a particular stage. And then when you're in the next stage, you know, you do what that stage demands. So I feel like my current obligation is towards making sure that my daughter has a decent enough education. And so that's what we put money for. But we know that that stage is going to end in a few years and then we should plan for a different way of spending that money. So that's certainly something that we think about. So the rule is every year you look and say what your target is going to be and it should be better than last year. Our assumption actually is the money that will get freed up, say from my daughter going to college and us paying for it, will go towards giving more rather than spending more. At least 70% of that will go towards giving more rather than spending more. And I think a few other things that we've done, which is that we just have some rules. So for example, my daughter goes to public school in the US and we are fortunate that we've always lived in areas where the public school is pretty good. We're also fortunate that she's a student who does well in that kind of public school environment. So we don't see the need to spend money to send her to private school. That's just a rule we have. We don't think about it. We don't say, should we do that? Shouldn't we do that? It's just us. So I think those rules can be about spending, but they can also be about a yes, no in terms of buying something. And what about your work, which is a part of your daily life, your work with the life you can save? We've talked a little bit about, but what about your work at Yale currently? How does that fit into this balance? Yeah, so, you know, it's really interesting. So first, I just want to talk about the fact that for many years, I was in the corporate world where the salaries are at least, you know, 100%, 200% better than what I what anyone can earn in the nonprofit world. And then about five years ago, I shifted to the nonprofit world to do what would be called direct work. So the work that I do, I run a research center at Yale University, and it's really focused on scaling development interventions. But it's, it's you know, it gets funding from funders, so it's still in the nonprofit ecosystem. A dilemma I often have, and I still have, is whether I have skills to make money. I mean, I have skills to do work in both areas. Should I be using that money to to go back to the private sector and to earn some money and give it away, what is called earning to give? In a way that's, you know, I think earning to give has had a bad name recently, but in a way that's reasonably ethical given a capitalist structure and give that away versus 
doing the direct work. I don't think that's a, that's the biggest sort of question around my work. And I don't think that's something I've necessarily settled on one side or the other, but it does force me to think about like, what exactly am I doing in my direct work? How effective it is? Because I could just go back to, you know, a corporate environment and just because of the way salaries work, earn much more and give much more away. And I think that's something for, I hope our listeners to also think about, which is you don't have to change you don't have to be in a nonprofit. You don't have to change what you do. You can do what you like. You can, you know, be your SVP in a bank and you can give your money away to help nonprofits. And I think what people don't realize, which is what I realized once I started working, is that fundraising, and you talked about that, is the hardest thing. And we would be so grateful if people just give us money. <laughs> they don't have to come and spend time with us. They don't have to, you know, just, just give. So I think we underestimate that. So, Neil, I have to say, we don't ask you to fundraise too much, but you're a generous donor because I know you hate fundraising. But if we should get a gift from a very wealthy person, and there are tons of them out there, or we aggregate a lot of money for marketing, and we really get this large marketing budget, then we will expect you to come back to work for the life you can save full time to help us figure out what the best way to raise money for effective charities. Yeah, are. and you know, it's always a question, Charlie, like, should I just, you know, give the income up and work for a very low or f almost, you know, work full time for say the life you can save? And what's the good that I would do with doing that versus should I work in a corporate thing and earn even more and give it Sometimes the most important thing that you can do is to take what you have, take the resources and just donate them generously. My wife, who you know, Diana, said that her work as a family doctor all these years, she's retired now, was very rewarding. And she felt like, she, and I'm, I know that she was a wonderful doctor and compassionate and kind of rare, I think, in many ways. But when you ask her what her biggest impact was, her marginal impact, she would say it wasn't as a doctor, it was as a large donor to the life you can save. Yeah. And that's really interesting to think about. Here's this compassionate doctor, but by just simply writing a check to the life you can save, because she's not really very involved in our work on a day-to-day -day basis. She felt she made more impact than the 30 years she spent as a family doctor. I also have to say that's one of the reasons I give, because I feel like, who knows what we do in our life, Charlie, whether we like have any impact at all or not, or we're just fooling ourselves, right? But at least by doing this, I know like some part of my uh, skills that have gone to raise this money are being used effectively, right? So I feel like I'm in control, like I'm doing something versus the actually like thinking about the big problems of poverty and doing absolutely nothing about it. So that's the other thing I would actually tell everyone, like you can think about social justice. You can think that poverty cannot be solved just by putting band-aids, you know, that all of these things are band-aids, but that doesn't prevent you from, that's completely separate from giving 10% of your income or whatever it is, whatever you can afford to nonprofits that are proven to be effective, right? Because they need the money and they can do a lot with that. So I think regardless of what I would do with the rest of my life, I would always give some away because it's just not worth another handbag. It just isn't worth it. Let me ask you another question, which may or may not seem related to you. Do you think that living a moral life and living a very pleasurable life are in conflict? think so. I mean, it's in conflict in the sense of you have to make some trade-offs. 
So, you know, we live in a really nice part of New York. We're in Manhattan. So it's not like we're out there in the in the woods with no running water and we're doing that. We probably have one of the smaller apartments amongst our friends. But honestly, we don't need something that's... Uh, that we have plenty of pleasures. I mean, actually, the nice thing which I found, the other thing about living in the US is a lot of the pleasures are free or low cost. For example, you have the free library. So I don't think I bought a book. It's my apologies to all authors, but I'm told like getting it from the library is good enough because I can get whatever books I want from the library. It's totally free. I spent a lot of money in India buying books. There are lots of free concerts, so I can go out there and get them. Most of the museums are free. So if I want to see art, I don't need to buy it and put it in my house where I worry about, you know, a cat jumping on it or something. I can just go nicely to a nice museum, spend an afternoon there. There are parks. So I think what we don't realize in in developed countries is how many pleasures there are. And so I don't feel that as much living in the U.S. at all. What about giving? I mean, is that one of your pleasures? I mean, it's nice to know, right? It does give me a warm glow. So I'm going to say that. I don't think that, uh, you know, I'd, I think I'd be remiss with it. I feel good every time I give. And sometimes I wonder whether I should give like more frequently smaller amounts than give one large check. But then I realize I would probably forget to give more frequently. <laughs> So then I just give the the ones at the end of the year. But every time I give, I feel really good about it. You know, you feel like a good person. Yeah, no, I think so. I mean, somebody, I think it was Mike Shore, likened uh, the feeling you get in a smaller way. Like when you go to the supermarket and you take this trolley, this shopping cart, you fill it up, (laughs) you bring it to your car. And when you bring it back, you actually get a good feeling like, hey, I'm the kind of person that brings back my shopping cart, not the kind of person that leaves it in the parking lot. And it makes you feel good. Well, when when you're giving and helping the girls in the drowning pond or whatever, I think you get that feeling times 100, which is why someone like me, who I think of myself as kind of hedonistic, have always been really a pleasure seeker throughout my entire life, that working at the Life You Can Save as a volunteer and being a donor is really giving me the balance that I want to really feel like I'm an effective hedonist instead of just a plain old hedonist. I agree. And, you know, for me, the hardest would be, I mean, I I laugh because I work in the nonprofit sector, but like, it's just hard for me to like live that life. And so this is a good balance because I feel like it's people go like, oh, how can you give that away? But it's so easy because you're like, you know, I don't need to dust another handbag. So it's actually like not even such a big deal. But you get a lot of like brownie points from doing that from yourself. Well, I do want you to, if you decide to earn to give and go back, say to Pepsi, I want to have all the free Lay's potato chips you can, uh, <laughs> yeah. you can so give me. It is one of the other pleasures, which is not too expensive, you know, potato chips. <laughs> yeah, but it's not too good for me. I have to balance that it's out. It's not. Of, against longevity, but I could live on Lay's potato chips, I have Mm. to say. I want to end with asking you a question that we've been running around, but maybe it allows you to just summarize all this stuff. And I want to ask you, as I'm asking all of our guests, what do you think it means to live a moral life? I think it means, first of all, the do no harm. So I'm very taken by that. I think, you know, try and do as little harm as you possibly can environmentally, humanly, etc. Try and treat people well, treat them respectfully, you know, affirm their dignity, that kind of thing. And then I think it means doing something actively to sort of repair the world. So, you know, making a 
making a useful contribution in whatever way you can. I do think that if you all you did was just be a nice person, you still haven't done enough. I think you have to actively do something and that do something can be, I'll use my resources, whether that's my money, my time, my skills, my energy to actually make some, you know, perceptible difference or to try and do that in the world. To me, that's like being a model person. Is that the American part of you, the Indian part of you, or a blend, do you think? That's very much, that's the American part, but I was very attracted to America by this notion of sort of freedom and independence. I think the Indian part, the the do no harm and, you know, be good to people. I think there's an Indian part of me which also says that, you know, there's a certain... I wouldn't say duty, but I think it's, for example, looking after older people or folks who are disabled or things like that. That's just part of being in a good society. And I think it's part of not just tolerating, but actively sort of living with other people and seeing that they bring something to the table. So that's part of the sort of the just treat people nicely. I mean, everybody's a person. Like, why do you have to be differential in your treatment of people. So I think that's the, maybe the Indian part is more duty, but I think uh, I, I prefer to think of it more individualistically. I think the integration of bringing elderly people in your family into your life and just feeling that's a given is maybe more Indian than American. Yeah. But I think there are lots of benefits, right? So, I mean, I think it is a cultural norm that is actually a good thing because, for example, it helps the young to see that we will all reach the stage. It develops empathy, it develops patience, and you know, it's not something I have, but which I've developed. So I think that uh, these are good cultural norms that we should sort of get more into maybe American society. Well, as I've grown older, I've really appreciated the idea of my children integrating me into their lives. But yes. I think it really has benefited our granddaughters as well. Exactly, so it's like giving. The relationships we've established with our granddaughters are incredible. I, I sometimes think better than with our own children, just because it's, we have more energy for it and you can always exactly. dump them off at the end of the day and you don't have to put them to bed and all of those kinds of things. It's not all cost. No. That's what, you know, that's the whole idea. It is benefit. And I think if you, if you ask me, I mean, now that you ask me about, you know, sort of Indian culture, you know, one of the things is I used to travel in a very crowded Indian train and people would come and you could seat three people, right, in a seat. And someone would come and they would push for the fourth seat and they'd be like, kindly adjust. And that's really the sort of, I think, the mentality you grow up with, like, just kindly adjust, you know, we don't have to be so rigid about about things. And so if you adjust for other people, you will get a lot more benefits. There's a loss of efficiency, but I think it comes with a ton more benefits. So maybe that's part of my Indian culture. Well, Neela, it's always great to talk to you. You've been a fascinating person to chat with for this hour, and I appreciate your making the time to do it. And I hope that the people who've listened will enjoy the podcast and subscribe to hear more fascinating guests. But you've been fabulous. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Musings About Ourselves and Other Strangers. Subscribe and join us. Our guests have varied experiences, different points of view, and interesting ideas about what it means to live a well-balanced moral life. We hope you'll share this podcast with those close to you. We'd also like to invite you to rate and review this podcast on whatever platform you use. And if you're interested in learning more about the life you can save and the charities we benefit, visit thelifeyoucansave.org slash musings.